Whoops, wrong level. There we go. Mm, mm. Welcome to the Eternal Student. I am Dan Clark, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Sean Keating. Greetings and welcome to an episode in which we're going to dive into the world of virology with my graduate school advisor, Dr. Thomas Hill. Tom is now retired as a professor. Uh, he was at the University of North Dakota Health Sciences in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology, in which I earned a master's degree in that department. And Tom was my advisor and was a phenomenal teacher and person and human. He got his PhD at the University of Colorado Health Science Center. His wife, Anne, is also a professor of microbiology. They have now retired and live in Colorado. And they showed us the view of the mountains <laughs> and the eight acres they live on with their two dogs. And it is phenomenal. It pales in comparison to the parking lot that I am staring at right now. So we asked Tom about the pandemic, about all things coronavirus, and then about the world of higher education, how he ended up changing from a music major to a microbiologist. Spent years at Drexel University before heading up to the University of North Dakota where I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to work in his lab and do a master's thesis on bacterial persistence in Escherichia coli. Oh, there's a mouthful. If that doesn't get you going, I don't know what will. We're in a pandemic, people, and we have a virologist Sit back and listen to the musings of Dr. Tom Hill as we dive into The Eternal Student. So I think the first question I'd like to start with is just, you know, obviously you've got a background in, you know, virology and a, and a PhD um, and just kind of your life's work. I mean, the short version, I guess, is just kind of like, how'd you end up doing what you did for your career? And just okay. tell us a little bit, little bit about how that story evolved. Okay. Well, so interestingly, uh, I started college as a music major. Uh, I spent two years doing that uh, and uh, realized... Realized that uh, maybe I could have music as a hobby <laughs> and maybe find something a little bit better in terms of uh, making money and having a career. Uh, so I, I remember just flipping through the catalog of uh, Texas Tech University, which is where I ended up graduating from, uh, and seeing, well, what, <laughs> what do I think I want to do for the rest of my life? And science interested me in high school. I had some good teachers, uh, chemistry, biology teachers. And so I said, I'll give that a try. Um, so I started taking classes, uh, got really interested. Uh, I ended up working in a laboratory, research laboratory, my senior year. Uh, stayed there for another year as a, as a lab tech and just enjoyed doing the experiments. I like working with my hands. So, um, I ended up applying for graduate school 
Uh, went to the University of Colorado uh, Health Sciences Center in Denver at that time. Um, and uh, the lab I went to uh, that I decided to do my doctoral work in, um, the guy was really a bacteriologist, but back then funding from the National Institutes of Health was fairly easy uh, compared to these days. And so he had gone to France for a sabbatical, uh, studied herpes simplex virus there, came back, wrote a grant, got the money, but he had nobody in his lab working on the virus project. So when I joined his lab, he said, why don't you work on this? <laughs> and I said, sure, why not? <laughs> uh, so I did. And so I ended up getting my doctoral degree on uh, the interactions of herpes simplex virus with the host, how the virus um, actually commandeers the cell machinery to make more copies of itself. And it's a pretty interesting story that uh, when a virus infects a cell, uh, it starts directing the cell to quit making its own proteins and start making viral proteins. And I mean, it, in this case with the herpes simplex virus, it completely shuts down the host. It's not making any of its own proteins anymore. It's only making viral proteins. And so that's part of the process that the, the viruses are able to do that and you know just redirect the cell that say, no more cellular machinery, just make lots and lots and lots of copies of me. So a single virus infects a cell and there can be hundreds if not thousands of offspring from that interaction. Um, so from there, um, I ended up going to the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center for a year, also worked on herpes simplex. Um, and, and I'll say that that was a postdoctoral uh, situation for me. That's after you get your PhD, you go do a postdoc before they make you a faculty member. Um, and that one, as it turned out, didn't work out. So I had to uh, change direction. And so I came back to Colorado to the uh, Boulder campus, the main campus of University of Colorado and started working on E. coli. And um, from there, I went to Drexel University in Philadelphia for seven years, and then 21 years at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine. And during both of those faculty positions, uh, I retained my interest in virology, even though most of my research was on uh, E. coli. And so I taught graduate students and medical students um, about viruses. And it's always been a, I just find them fascinating. Uh, they are these just little pieces of nucleic acid uh, surrounded by a protein coat and maybe a membrane and how they manage to <laughs> infect animals, people, plants, just make copies in the cells along the way, of course, problem is that they can cause disease if they replicate too efficiently in a host and start causing damage to the organs. So how, how, like for most viruses, can you trace back to the moment it either, you know, jumps from animal to human or the origin point? Like, is that, is that a big part of virology is trying to, I mean, is there a, a sector of virology where it focuses on that point? of contact? Yeah, absolutely. So epidemiology okay. is sort of the area where you would look at how virus, it, you know, change, you know, jumps from say animals to humans. And, and that's really 
sort of animals turn out to be a really important reservoir for all types of viruses. And as long as humans interact with those, whatever animal it is, I guess there's always the possibility that it could make that leap from animals to humans. And sometimes it might be not a problem and sometimes it is. So probably one of the best studied is um, the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, uh, which causes AIDS. And they've gone back and been able to trace the origin of that, um, how it um, probably, you know, jumped from uh, um, a primate host to humans uh, in Africa and how then it traveled down a river, got into a major population area. And then once it was in that major population area, it was able to spread around the world. And, and there's sort of an interesting analogy between HIV and the, the coronavirus, the, the new coronavirus, is that a little bit difference in terms of time, but people who got infected with HIV would carry that virus for 10 years before they might be showing symptoms. So they were considered asymptomatic at that point, and which means that they could transmit the virus unknowingly. And we see that with the coronavirus too, is that people can get infected with the virus and not even know it. So about, I see different numbers on that, you know, probably 10, maybe 20% of individuals um, are infected with the coronavirus are asymptomatic carriers. And so they'll have the virus, they show no symptoms, they don't even know they have it. Um, and then they can transmit it to other people unknowingly. And so that's one of the big differences between this version of SARS. So this is SARS-CoV-2, the original one that came out in 2002, 2003, uh, as best I can tell, didn't have any asymptomatic uh, cases. If you caught that virus, you got sick. And it was probably the scariest virus I ever taught about in my career as a virologist. Uh, because um, it had almost a 10% mortality rate. So there's only 8,000 cases that occurred of that virus, but only less than, slightly less than 800 deaths. So that'd be, if this coronavirus had a 10% mortality rate, oh gosh, that'd be crazy. That so, would just be crazy. So I remember when, when, you know, taking some of your classes and back in grad school and talking about pandemics and pandemic response and, and just, you know, this has very much been a thing, and I'm sure you studied it and talked about it back when you were a grad student all the way through. And now that we're living through um, something that has been, you know, I think something that in, in your background and experience, definitely a virology, like, would expect to happen and understand that this could happen. Um, but as we go through it to, as a general population, right, there's all kinds of, it. it it's hard to wrap our minds around um, what's really going on because viruses are so difficult to study in real time. And there's so much we don't know that we're learning as we go. I guess, what would you, you know, your background and experience seeing what we're living through right now, how surprised, unsurprised, and that a virus like this has come in and infiltrated the world? Well, so for, I, I started teaching virology in 89. Um, and every year I know I said there's going to be a pandemic at some point, big pandemic. And 
there's been some that have been, uh, you know, we thought it'd be influenza. So there's been a couple of influenza pandemics that have occurred, not like the one that we always relate to, which is the 1917-1918 uh, pandemic. Uh, that was apparently a bird flu, an avian flu that jumped to humans. Um, and so <laughs> we knew it was coming, but you know, the reality of what you might read about versus what you experience can be very different. Um, I did not expect this to play out the way it has. I did not expect to run out of toilet paper <laughs> or something like that. Uh, you know, paper towels are another thing that we just have problems getting, you know, just so initially that changed when people started buying up all sorts of, you know, supplies for this and, that really sort of shook me in terms of, gosh, how will this, if, if this gets worse, you know, what really is going to happen? So watching everything shut down, um, you know, to try and limit the, the spread of the virus, um, I guess I was also very surprised by uh, the backlash that we've seen in terms of wearing masks from some people, uh, you know, I did not expect that. I thought this would be some something that everybody could get on board to try and avoid, um, but that didn't happen either. So, um, and you know, like I said earlier and before we started uh, the show, um, I've been really quite fortunate that I didn't have to worry about going to work. I didn't have to worry about a paycheck. We're financially stable. You know, I live on in a really beautiful spot. Um, we have the option of going to town or not going to town except for essentials. And so for me, the experience hasn't been as severe as it has been for a lot of people. Uh, so I've only, I, I'd say, experienced just marginally what could be happening to other people or what is happening to other people. So it's been a surprise. It's been bigger than I thought. And I, I've read a fair amount about the, the great influenza, they called it in 1917, but the reality is far different from reading about it in a book. Yeah, the the um, the 1918 or 1917 pandemic is an interesting one, um, at least from terms of history. It always sticks out to me how it gets, it gets coined as the Spanish flu, of course. But right. in fact, <laughs> Spain had nothing to do with any of it. You know, Kans, I think right. Kansas was where the, where the first case was recorded in the United States. And the reason it gets yes. called the Spanish flu is that during World War One, Spain is one of the only countries to be neutral and other countries in the war have a media blackout. So Spain is one of the right. only countries that ends up reporting stories on this and they end up calling it the Spanish flu. And I think the Spanish actually called it like the Italian flu. <laughs> um, so it's just... It, this, I would have blamed it on the French, but that's me. <laughs> this entire, I mean, right. this all this field, it's just this, you know, the way things jump into the human population and the way things play out, it's all, It's just this crazy, like I can see why it's so interesting because for me it's, it's almost like you're just, you're tracing back, at least this part, you're tracing back all the dominoes that have to fall in order for us to get to this exact yeah. point. And at, and at first, if you go back to how this started, right, it's, it's trying to blame somebody, blame China, blame this, blame that, right? All right. And then at some point, you got to deal with it. So 
as you've watched maybe a little bit from afar, tucked away in your mountain view, Durango landscape, um, are you, where do you think we're going? Like, do you think we're near the end? Do you think we're in the middle? Do you think, I guess we talked a little bit about beforehand with this new strain and everything. How do you think this plays out through the rest of 2021 and beyond? Right. So, so I'm going to start off by saying I'm very bad at predicting. So, and just you give you a, a couple of examples. Then you can't be a politician. My, yeah, my siblings contacted me back in February of last year and said, well, how's this exactly that question? How is this going to play out? And, and based on what I saw with SARS, the original SARS, and how they were able to really shut that down pretty quickly, only 8,000 cases. Um, I made an estimate that I thought there'd be uh, maybe a quarter million cases in the U.S. <laughs> well, we passed a quarter million deaths, what, back in November. And so it, it clearly is very different from what I had predicted originally. Um, I guess what I, I worry about now uh, is, is these new variants that have arisen. And, and there's actually quite a few. There's, there's the U.K., variant, which is called the B117, 117, is the one that I think people are, are most concerned about. But then there's there's been some other variants that have arisen uh, South Africa. Actually, they just identified uh, some new ones in Ohio. I just saw two new variants. Now, I don't know if they're going to be the same, but these new variants are, are able to transmit more efficiently. Um, it's not really clear why. Uh, they know that there's been some mutations, some changes in the spike protein, that, which is a protein that allows the virus to attach to cells and infect the cells. So it may be that that is binding more efficiently. Um, but uh, the bottom line is if, it, <laughs> if it's more infectious, and I've seen numbers like 40 to 70% more infectious, um, then more people are gonna get infected. And, and we still pretty much have a population in the U.S. that's unvaccinated. So it's, it's, it's as if, you know, you're starting with a naive population right now. And I don't so know if those, this, sorry, I don't know if those numbers are out, but the, the new variants, the, the vaccine is going to have some protection. It might just be, we don't know exactly how much. Is that kind of accurate? Right. So that's going to be one of the questions because the, the, um, uh, the vaccine is directed against the same protein, the spike protein, the one that's used for binding. So as the virus accumulates mutations in that uh, protein, it is possible that the, the vaccine won't be as effective. Uh, we don't know that yet. Uh, as best I can tell, uh, the new variants are uh, more infectious, but they don't seem to be more virulent or more likely to cause severe disease. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, but I think now we're in a race of getting people vaccinated while this new variant that can infect more people more quickly. Um, so that's going to be the race right now. Um, and hopefully the vaccine really won't have, uh, won't lose any, um, protective measures against these new variants. Now, it is possible uh, that, that more uh, the virus can accumulate additional mutations that may make the vaccine less protective. That would not be a good thing. And I think that's one of the things they are concerned about. 
So for just educational purposes, um, there's the question that always comes up. Are you getting the vaccine? And how do you feel about it? And um, all of that. And, you know, just from the general population and, um, you know, this, this project Warp Speed and how they made this vaccine within, you know, a year is pretty remarkable, obviously from a scientific standpoint. And um, being a, you know, RNA-based vaccine, which is, I think, to my knowledge, one of the, the first, if not the first, that's been produced like this. But this technology has been around and this concept has been around for many, many years. Um, what are your just overall thoughts on the science behind the vaccine? And then, I guess, just to the people with the, you know, the, uh, the caution of, you really going to put that in your body? Well, yeah, one statistic I read was like 30 to 60% of uh, healthcare workers in like nursing homes were refusing to take it. That's a pretty wide range of percentages, but it was just, to me, you know, you'd think that somebody that was somewhat in a profession that was, you know, touching the medical field would have a, uh, you know, a better understanding of what this would mean if you got it versus not getting it. Yeah, and you can allude to this too, Tom, but just because you're in a scientific field, I mean, I always say this, like understanding viruses, and it's such a niche concept and there's so much to it. So, I mean, getting out this information to the general public, is it's, it's difficult. Right, so with regards to vaccines in general, uh, I can tell you all what in your audience, what I told the medical students, uh, which was if you learn nothing else from me uh, during the course of the year that I taught uh, virology to medical students, learn the value of vaccines and, and try and convince your patients of the value of having vaccines because they have been a tremendous game changer. Uh, a lot of childhood diseases that, you know, impacted the healthcare system cause well, polio virus, you know, that, you know, it crippled children and it put people in iron lungs and, you know, the vaccine came out and we're close to eradicating polio virus worldwide. And of course, smallpox, they did. Um, interesting. I don't think if, if getting a little bit off topic now, the smallpox vaccine had a lot of side effects. Um, I think if they tried to introduce that vaccine now, It'd be a mess, but they were able to do it and they eradicated the disease. Uh, so it, vaccines are really a game changer in terms of preventing these infections and serious. They may not even necessarily prevent an infection, but they can really change the severity of the disease. So um, with regard to these new vaccines, it's actually really exciting what they've been able to do. So. There's different types of vaccines that have been used um, in the past. And there's some where they use live viruses that have been attenuated or weakened. So you actually do get infected by the virus in the vaccine, uh, but it, it's not a, a virulent form of the virus. So you don't have disease, you don't get symptoms. Um, there's also killed vaccines where they just take the whole virus and they they treat it in such a way that it is no longer able to replicate um, and inject that. And so that also can uh, give your immune system the ability to re respond to that virus if you see it again. Um, 
They've also started making subunit vaccines and, and the new vaccine is in a way, um, I guess, sort of like a subunit and I, I can explain that. So the vaccine for the uh, hepatitis B virus is what's considered a subunit vaccine. They don't inject the whole virus. Uh, they just inject uh, one of the main proteins of the virus and then you, you make an immune response to that particular protein. And in doing so, you prevent uh, your immune system can recognize that if the virus infects you, and then it can make antibodies or there can be a cellular immune response uh, against the virus when it, it enters the body. And so, these, so that would be an example of a subunit. Now, this, these new vaccines use a messenger RNA. Uh, and so what that is, that's the uh, genetic information that encodes a protein. In this case, it's the spike protein. So the vaccine is nothing more than a piece of RNA and a uh, lipid membrane around it to allow it to enter cells. And so once the, the, the vaccine uh, binds to a cell, it'll dump the messenger RNA inside the cell, and then the cell starts making that viral protein. And uh, once the protein is made, uh, then the immune system will recognize it as being foreign, and then you start getting that immune response. Uh, and what it does that makes it important uh, is that the immune system has a memory. And so once it's seen that viral protein, uh, if in the future you get infected, your immune response will respond much more rapidly uh, to the presence of the virus. Uh, and typically because of that, it can keep the disease from getting to the point where it can start causing uh, organ damage or symptoms, you know, the bad part of, of the infection. So the first time you get infected um, with the virus, if you don't have a vaccine, uh, that's gonna be the worst, worst outcomes typically. Uh, but if you've seen the virus before, if your body's been infected before, the immune response has memory and it will remember that virus when it shows up the next time. And then it will mount a, a, an immune response much quicker and then prevent the virus from replicating enough to cause symptoms or to cause disease. So with this, with this mRNA process, you know, I'm, we say that it took, you know, less than a year to, to actually make the vaccine, but in reality, wasn't the vaccine like, how different was the first version of the vaccine that they made uh, than the one that they're giving people now, do you think? My understanding, so, so, one, of the, so uh, one of the great things, if you will, about uh, how this pandemic rolled out is the Chinese were able to isolate the virus fairly early on. And like in January uh, of last year, about this time last year, they released the genome sequence of the virus. So they were able to completely sequence uh, the viral genome. And once they had that, um, because there's other coronaviruses, they know the, the sequence of genes, you could pretty easily identify, okay, this is the spike protein that is encoded in the genome. This is the part of the genome where that's encoded. And then you can, I, I think um, Moderna, uh, made that, yeah, I think it was like a week 
is all it took for them to design it was yeah the vaccine i mean it's that quickly because you just say okay we're going to make this messenger rna that's going to produce this this uh, viral protein and then all we have to do uh, you know certainly they had been working on the whole process of of making the messenger rna and then putting it inside that uh lipid envelope um which is also the beauty they had it designed and started making it right away and so that was the beauty of this uh you know before they had you know like with influenza they would inject eggs or uh with the virus or they infect cell cultures and you know that's a big ramp up you can synthesize the uh, messenger RNA, you can make bundles of that really quickly. So, so it's an easier process. It's quicker. You can ramp it up and scale uh, a lot easier. And so my understanding is they had, they had the vaccine within a week, or at least the design <laughs> of the vaccine within a week. And then it was just a matter of starting to, to produce it and then go through the different trials that they needed to, to get it approved. Yeah. I always, I always was telling people back in March, I I actually have a couple of colleagues that work at Moderna that uh, I worked in right after I graduated from grad school. And um, uh, when I talked to them, they said that same thing, you know, we, it's ready, it's ready to go. And, and I just asked them, you know, how encouraged are you by things? And he told me straight up, he just said, I've never been more encouraged because of the communication and the effort that everyone understands or trying to do something basically bigger than just make money on this one. You know, like, like you could, you could just feel that around the world, there was communication between labs and people weren't necessarily sharing the, you know, the patents and all that stuff, but they were sharing processes and how to um, run the clinical trials and make sure that this was going to get, on the ground floor. So his prediction was, I certainly, he, he thought I'd be ready by January and it was actually earlier than that. So, um, I think it, it, the more I've researched the, you know, and, and heard about the people that operated even in the federal government at that level, um, it's pretty remarkable. Right. And so, you know, to get back to the original point, would I take the vaccine? Absolutely. So one of the things I just saw this morning, uh, from the New York times is that, um, of the 32,000 people that were vaccinated uh, originally as part of the trials, the number that actually had severe disease, one. So that's huge, you know, as compared to, uh, I can't remember, I think it's like 18 to 20% of people get severe disease, depending on your age group. But, uh, you know, it, it can, that's a big change. Yeah. One out of 32,000, I'll, I'll take those odds. And is that because of the, the the process of just using that protein wrapped in the lipid that would cause it to be less of a, you know, side effect or possibility of getting that, uh, what, uh, part of the disease? Well, yeah. So so the, the point there was that, you know, it, it, so I think one of the questions that is circling around out there is, well, can you be infected with the virus? if you have been vaccinated. And uh, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head, but my understanding is this is gonna be more like a flu uh, vaccine going forward. Uh, One of the things that I I think is pretty clear now that that this particular coronavirus is gonna become endemic. That means it's it's gonna be here forever. It's not gonna go away. And, 
And like the flu, that doesn't go away. Uh, you can get vaccinated against the flu. Uh, you can still get infected. You just may not have as severe a disease course. So it's probably going to be the same thing with this. And so that's the important point is I'm not so much, you know, re reactions against the vaccine when it's injected, but more that uh, once you receive the two doses of the vaccine, the chances of you having uh, severe disease outcome are greatly reduced. I think a lot of our listeners just went, Oh God, <laughs> well, I this mean, ain't going away. Well, I mean, that's when, do, when does that, I mean, <laughs> sorry. I've, I've, is there a point that you, we have to hit for that to be like a, a sure thing? I mean, I think already you could probably already tell based on how many times it's, you know, evolved or, or well, you you're know. starting to see these new strains. Right. And so, I mean, that's to, kind of a, a clue that it's going to be, something that comes back or it's here, you know, it stays here all year, every year. And it becomes another one of those, you know, additional. And part of that viruses. too, Tom, and maybe you can go into that a little more detail, but like if you look at the, the R value or the infection rate on this, um, you know, unlike other more severe viruses, like you mentioned smallpox or, you know, that have a higher mortality rate, Right. This has a high transmission rate, and it's over. I don't know what it is exactly. If it's changed since it came out, it I thought I heard around. On, yeah, it depends on a couple of things, you know. So that transmission rate depends on you know the time uh, and and also the you know the population that you're infected. I see numbers ranging anywhere from two to five. Yep. Um, something like that. The pro part of the problem though is you also have super spreaders. There are people who, who I've seen like, I think I saw something where like 60% of the cases um, of all cases are caused by just a few people who, you know, a, a few, a smaller percentage that are the super spreaders. Um, yeah, so so it, it's, it varies a little bit on that, but, but this one, yes, it is higher than some of the other diseases. That's higher than influenza, for instance, that R value. Are not, it's called and because that. it doesn't have a high mortality rate, it means the virus isn't stopping with somebody, right, and resulting in death. It's continually to spread from host to host to host, whereas there's no real end game for this unless we get yeah, vaccinated and we, we right. figure that out. Right. Exactly. But I, but I would say even with vaccination, uh, the virus is not going to go away. Uh, particularly, you know, like the there's a percentage of people who won't be vaccinated. And of course, you know, there'll be, you know, there's always babies, <laughs> new, new potential hosts being introduced into the uh, population. Uh, so there's really no reason for the reason for the vac the virus to go away any, you know, going forward. This is, I feel you like know, that's going to be a, a hard pill to swallow for a large, a large <laughs> part of the population. I don't think anyone, I mean, of course, people that are, hip to these issues probably already know that, but do you think that's a, a common reality that people have faced uh, in their own thoughts that this is going to be around for, you know, the rest of their life? I don't think it has to be. Honest. No, no. I mean, you go back to how this started, right? Everyone's like, well, by the summer, this will be over by Labor I, Day, by the election, by 2021. Yeah. And yeah. it's still here. Right. Yeah. So, so what we'll hope for is, you know, as uh, as more people get vaccinated, then that's going to start 
cutting down the number of individuals that the virus can infect pr productively. And so, and if we keep doing the social distancing and wearing masks, that's also going to, you know, I, I keep waiting for this particular wave to go down. So uh, when I was, I've been tracking the virus, uh, you know, on that Johns Hopkins website, that, and, and you can see it, it peaks back in April. Uh, I think the seven day average of new infections back then was around 30,000. And then it went down and then it picked up on, over the summer again. Um, and it, I think the seven day average was around almost 70,000 at the peak. And then it started dropping back down and it actually went back down into the around 30,000 in September. And then it just took off. I think I saw yesterday the average is, is like 225,000 a day. That's nuts. Wow. That's just nuts. I never, again, had I made a prediction, ah, it'd probably stop around 100,000. Yeah. <laughs> nope, wrong. So last one I want to ask on this, and then we can go to uh, a few other questions we have for you. But um, over your yeah. lifetime, you've seen obviously different, you know, viruses pop up and different strains and different, you know, not just in this country, but around the world in different places. Right. Um, and politics has always played a role in different things. And, and, you know, like kind of the religious side of things, whether it might be coming from stem cells to all other aspects of science where there, there might be a little bit of a debate about it or, or whatever, but just mm -hmm. without getting too political, is, is it, you know, is it just kind of amazing to see how science, which we know is facts and a process and has become really like a virus has become completely politicized? Yeah, I, I, I'm surprised at that. Um, and, and the reason I'm surprised is just maybe it's because of my age. Um, so I'm, I'm 68 now. So I grew up, you know, watching in the, the 50s and 60s, they started rolling out vaccines against polio virus, measles, you know, uh, these childhood diseases, they were hugely successful. Uh, I watched... I watched this go to the moon. I mean, talk about science and technology and engineering. Uh, something that our country was able to do in the 60s. You know, talk about civil unrest. Boy, go back to 1968. And we had assassinations and we had riots, uh, but we put a man on the moon. And so back then, you know, 50 years ago, science was going to be something that helped make our lives better. Um, I have seen probably over the last two decades um, a change in that attitude, that people have become more distrustful of sciences, scientists and science in general. Um, it worries me um, because I think you know, it's important that we become educated, that we pursue science, because if we are going to, if the, the art, this country is going to try to continue to be a leader, you have to educate people, you have to have scientists, you have to follow up on the technology. And by taking an attitude of, um, I'm going to call it anti-science, we're only going to lose. The future generations are not going to be as prepared. Um, 
they aren't going to be making the important breakthroughs like we did in getting this vaccine rolled out as quickly as we did. Um, it's, I can't stress how important it is that we, you know, support higher education, support our kids going into math, science, engineering, uh, because if we don't, our country's going to pay for it. Simple as that. And why do you, th- and why do you think that distrust, uh, you know, exists? I mean, you talk about like the sixties, you talk about, um, you know, that time period in, in, you know, along with scientific exploration and advancement, that also was a time period where, you know, the, the seeds of distrust of the government begin, um, you know, with, you know, conspiracies surrounding the Kennedy assassination, the Watergate scandal, the Pentagon papers, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Does that, do you think that bleeds over into science or why do you think, you know, now there is this gap of believability or trustability in science for a segment of the population? Right. I I'm not sure I can answer that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, yeah, there's there's actually a, a great series um, CNN did where they did uh, took each decade. And I don't know if you've seen those, but if you look for those, uh, they used to be on Netflix, you know, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, 80s. It's really interesting to watch that. And I do think um, I, I do think starting in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, sort of the politics started getting into, um, you know, the possibly science, but just the distrust of the of the government, as you describe it. Yeah. So switching gears as a high school chemistry sure. biology teacher, one of the f- challenges you face when you have a, let's just say a general chemistry class, which the state of Minnesota requires you have a lot of students that have an attitude towards science and math of it's too hard. I don't understand it. I'm not good at it. Um, so one of the things, obviously, I've now spent a, a good majority of my career is trying to, you know, break through that and make it fun and make it interesting. And, and, and I think you alluded to, you know, you had a really good high school chemistry and biology teacher. And so that helped um, spark your interest. Um, as we try to break through those barriers, just kind of what do you think is really important? Um, you know, cause a lot of times the general kid might just say, I don't need it or it's too hard or it's whatever. Um, you are a music major to start. Um, what do you think is kind of what we need to do as a society just to help, um, continue that education and make sure everyone kind of has a base level of that foundation? Oof. Well, I think <laughs> starting off making required courses, um, because people may not, you know, certainly when you're in high school, um, junior high, college, you don't really necessarily know what interests you until you're exposed to it. Uh, so, and, and you know, just having, boy, is that, yeah, that's a tough question in some <laughs> ways. Because the only way I could make people interested is be, by being enthusiastic about it myself. So that's part of your role as a teacher. Um, how to convince, <laughs> so I can still remember this. When I took algebra, I, I was, this is when I was in junior high and, and I was a real pain in the rear end, no question about it. Because I remember asking my teacher back then, why do I have to learn this? I mean, this is in front of the whole class. Why do I have to learn this? I'm gonna end up being sent to Vietnam and get killed anyway. 
And so, jeez, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Wouldn't you hate having a kid like that in your class? Yeah, I've had plenty well, of them, Tom. <laughs> so, but you know, it was later on when I, I guess I'm not a good example of that, just from that story by itself. Uh, it took me a while to really grow up and understand the importance of those things and to find, find that I was really interested in that. Uh, how can you get somebody, you know, it, as a country, how do we get people involved? I think it's getting them into it early on. Um, is, you know, like I say, you know, they have to be required courses in, and I guess <laughs> whether they enjoy it or not, it's really important that they learn it yeah. and the biology and, you know, and chemistry. It's so I think that it, it's the right thing to do. Uh, man, I just don't know how we do it as a, you know, as a society, it, except, you know, I think back to the, again, back to the sixties, um, you know, there was a big push uh, that, that our society looked at it that way, that this is important. This is something we need to do. Um, I was just thinking that they used to have TV shows. One was called the College Bowl, where they'd have four students from two universe, you know, two different universities, and they'd ask them questions, and you know, they determined by whoever got the most questions right would win. I mean, try to imagine that now. Who's going to watch that? It's Jeopardy, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, but it's <laughs> but these were but these were college students. Yeah. You know, and so that's sort of, it, it was cool as, you know, pitting universities against each other on someplace other than the football field. It was an intellectual challenge. And it was on TV too. Like, can you imagine a <laughs> yeah, network it was. That's putting... That's what I'm saying. This was a, yeah. a TV show I used to watch. So I, I don't know how we get our society back to where we, we understand that, yes, science is not infallible. We know that. We make mistakes. Uh, what we know now may not be, you know, what we think we understand now may not be right. But the, the idea is that you can, you can test it. You can find out, uh, is this correct or is this not correct? And by doing experiments, uh, you know, doing what you need to do, you can get closer to the truth about, you know, how things actually work. So, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly very important for us as a society, as a country, to continue pushing forward, you know, in in, in science and technology and engineering. No question about it. So another question I have, I, I'm thinking back to my, my and I'll, we can talk about this at a, in another episode, but um, when I met you in, at the point in my life was um, I had graduated college, did not know what to do, and said, let's go to grad school. And I remember figuring out, you know, what lab I was going to be in and that thing. And I think at that point you, you weren't really having a ton of students in your lab and, um, right. and it ended up, I had a, uh, just a connection with you. And I think the main thing was, is that you were so enthusiastic and you were a, um, just tremendous teacher in the fact that you were so prepared. I remember you, how you just scathe over those PowerPoints and your lectures and get ready and the preparation that you do to um, give a presentation and to, to give a lecture. And that always had a huge impact on me and has helped me in, in my pursuit of, of becoming a great teacher. And just where, how would you describe your, 
um, just the art of teaching. You loved it. You were really great at it. And just how much you enjoyed teaching throughout your career. Well, it was, yeah. So I think one of the things I'm a talkative person. And so that helps. Uh, I guess I learned pretty early on that, uh, in just giving talks as a student that it, it seemed that something I had a, a bit of a gift for, if you will. Uh, so that helped. I was not afraid to get in front of people. Uh, and then, um, I realized that, you know, particularly uh, when I was at the at the university, that one I had an obligation to the students. You know, they're paying money, <laughs> and uh, and I want to give them the best experience I possibly can. Um, I always enjoyed the subjects I taught, so being in you know just getting into them was really not work in a lot of ways. I. I you know, and to dig deeper. And I loved seeing that light come on uh, with students. Uh, when I was at Drexel University, I taught a couple of large undergraduate classes and um, in, you know, basically freshman biology. And it was, it was just fun. You know, some of the topics we get into, you could just see them go, wow. Uh, so it, it was that interaction between the students and myself that I enjoyed the most. And certainly with graduate students, you know, working with people in the laboratory, uh, teaching them those, those techniques, uh, watching them become, you know, better at doing these experiments, you know, uh, and going on and, you know, having careers, it's very rewarding to see that as well. Um, yeah, so it, I, I don't know if I've answered your question, but those are the things that ended up being most important to me. It's just, it's something I, I really never got any uh, real training to be an educator. Um, and, but it was something that uh, I wish I had, um, quite honestly. Uh, but it, it's just something that it, I'd say it sort of came a bit naturally to me. Sean talked about how you have uh, innate ability to, to take extremely difficult or complex uh, ideas or topics and make them digestible uh, to, to students. So what, what is the, what is your trick to that? Did you, was that something that you, you know, purposefully sat and bounced ideas off the wall with, or is it something that usually just popped in your head as you were, you know, thinking about how to, how can I make this more relatable or understandable? Cause it is so complex. Right, and, and that, that's very important is, is I tried to look at it if I was a student, what were, how, how would I respond to uh, the presentation? How would I see what I was presenting to the students? So I tried to look at it from their perspective. And then I tried to think, okay, what is, what is something that, that they will be able to relate to more easily? Uh, it, it, and, and then try and, and, and build the idea around that, something that's relatable. So I think that's the most important thing I could, I could say in, in trying to do that is, is really try and take it from their perspective, from their understanding, from their level of, of education or their level of understanding. 
And, and then, yeah, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes mean that, you get a look, you know, what is he talking about? Yeah. Well, sometimes there's like a, you know, especially I, I've recognized now that the culture divide or the culture gap, it wasn't so big, you know, in the past where there was a common, you know, pop culture that we all tended to take part in. But now there's just so many nooks and crannies of the internet and different sites and different shows and different channels that, you know, everybody's into their own thing and any reference you make to, you know, I've referenced the matrix before and students, you know, can't even, they don't know what that is, you know, and I feel like that's right. kind of what would happen <laughs> if trying to make those relatable topics. And then you show up and you make the amazing uh, connection and they're like, I don't, what, what is that? I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. If it's not on Snapchat or TikTok, they don't really know. So, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, there probably is a, a bigger difference now is, is what the experience is, you know, it's sort of, yeah. In, in terms of the internet, internet's changed a lot of things. There are days when I am so thankful I had the internet to be able to look up stuff. And then there's other days I just wish they'd shut it down. <laughs> That'd probably be the best thing. To do. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> That had good. that thought before too yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right tom we'll get you out of here on this one um if you know you think about back when you made that, those decisions to uh kind of leave music pursue science and it ended up being you know your life's work um that's that's one of the things we really try to do on this show is help kids with you know they're trying to figure it out they're trying to figure out their life all and right. they're trying to figure out what to do um what would your best advice be to uh, those kids as they, you know, whatever age they might be 16, they might be 50 and still trying to figure it out. But just what, what, because at the end of the day, you talked about it. You said, you know, it didn't really seem like work to you. You loved it. You, you enjoyed it. Um, obviously that's a big part of it, but what else would you have to, to share with our listeners? Well, hmm. interesting question. Well, I can tell you how I made the decision to stop music. <laughs> and I have to thank a teacher for that. Um, and it was, so I, I played saxophone. That was my interest. And I was really interested in jazz. And I went to uh, what's now the University of North Texas. Um, and so you had to take private lessons on your instrument, which I did. And so at the end of each semester, you get part of your grade was based on what they called a jury. Uh, so you would like the four or five saxophone teachers uh, would be in a room and you come in with your saxophone and you might play a prepared piece and then there's some other things they might ask you to play. Uh, and so that was a big part of your grade. Uh, so the end of my second year, uh, the end of the second semester, I went into my jury and um, you know, played and uh, they'd give you a written sheet, you know, about how you did. And they handed that to me at the end of the jury. And every one of them said, wow, this was excellent. This is the best we've ever heard you play. You know, keep up the good work, blah, blah. So it was a few days later, I got my grade and I got a B. And I was going, what? How could, is it possible that I played the best I ever played and got a B? And I went and talked to my saxophone teacher and um, he said, yeah, you played the best you ever did, but it wasn't as good as the other people who <laughs> made A's. 
And that, uh, you know, I spent the next month, I practiced really hard. And then I said, you know what? There are people out there, actually at the school I was at, North Texas, excellent musicians. And I decided, you know, I could practice 24 seven. And I've, you know, for the next 10 years, and I'm not still not going to be as good as the guy sitting next to me is now. And then maybe under those circumstances, maybe it's time for me to find something else. Um, interestingly, when I was working on my PhD, I also failed um, a big test. And that was my, um, with, um, it's called your comprehensive exam. Uh, which usually occurs at the end of about the second or third year. And I took that the first time and I failed it. And again, I had to have a reckoning because I was only going to have one more chance. And that time I'd said, you know, I can do this. And um, passed it the second time and then went ahead and got my doctorate and went on to have a career. Uh, so probably, you know, in making decisions, uh, I don't know why I went on one way on one and the other way on the other. They were both failures. I, I think you often learn more from your failures than your successes. I'm not, that's not to say you should go out and intentionally try and fail, but sometimes there's more to, you learn how to, what is the important thing to do. And it took some soul searching, uh, both times I made the right decision. Um, it could have easily gone the other way, I guess. But uh, one time, both times, I just, I had to look at where I was in life. I had to look at what my priorities were, what I wanted to do, um, and where to go from those. And those, those two events probably were four or five years apart at the most. I wasn't that much different, but I guess I was a little bit wiser. And I guess the other thing I would say, uh, you guys probably say this maybe a different way. Um, another time I've, in my life, I was having some difficulties and uh, I found a phrase in a book called the lazy man's guide to enlightenment, <laughs> which is really <laughs> a bad book, but it, it was something I needed at the time. And, and the phrase was this one sentence that's been true the rest of my life is uh what happens to you is not as important as how you react to what happens. And so you're going to have successes. You're going to have failures. What you do with that event, how you react to it, and what you decide to do following that is more important than what actually happened. Amen to that. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's that's something we talk about a lot and mistake response. And, and um, you know, there's so many... It's, it's, it's great to hear everyone's story because there's so many times in your life, right, that shapes how you end up where you end up, and no one really knows it at the time. And, um, but those decisions, those little points, you know, um, affect everything. And, uh, you know, I'm sure glad you uh, quit music and, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> got into, uh, in, in, into higher education. And I know I benefited from it, and I know a lot of other people benefited from it as well. So, um, well, thank you. Thank you for doing that. And I think that's probably a good place to end it. Yeah, I've, this has been great. I've 
I, it's just great to talk to all sorts of people that, you know, I've never would have had the exposure to had it not been for doing this thing, you know? Yeah. I think what you guys are doing is great. This is really a, a good idea, a good way to spend your pandemic, uh, start, you know, getting educate, still continue to educate, educate people out there. Cause that's what's the most important thing for us right now. I hope I'm uh, as savvy enough to talk to my, uh, you know, financial advisor and make sure that he knows that when I retire, I want it to be a couple of years before the pa- next pandemic starts. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Good luck. 